play our songs, we sing, pray, as we hear and listen, um, I invite you to let this morning be a meditation um, on love and everything that that brings uh, for, up for you, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between, as we embrace and acknowledge uh, a world that needs love uh, so much. Um, I think we can all relate with that. So with that in mind, uh, would you join me in prayer as we get started? Let's pray. God of love, we come today to settle ourselves, to find what our souls are searching for, are needing. God, we thank you for the many ways in which love shows up for us. We thank you for the love we receive from family, friends, strangers. God, we ask that we might be shaped um, to be people of love, that we might seek out the places in our world and our culture um, that need the presence of love so deeply. And we ask that you would show us what it means to be agents of love in such a world. We ask that you would empower us, that you would give us courage and perseverance, God, to hold on to the love um, that we have, God, so that we might share it. We thank you that this community, that this um, group of people scattered, though we may be, is committed to just that and committed to seeing a world of justice, of love. May it be so this morning and each morning we pray. Amen. Bob will uh, light our fourth candle this morning. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. And uh, of course, we're in the middle of Advent. And um, as Max just introduced for us, this week, our focus is on love, which of course is fitting. And it's probably the thing that feels most comfortable in the Advent season with how we think about and celebrate Christmas culturally now. Um, but what I love about Advent is it's this way to kind of remember this hopeful expectation that we have for change and growth and progress. And, um, and for the people of Israel and for the early Christians, it was for transformation in the world, for relief from suffering and oppression. Um, in our current context, uh, it seems so fitting. Um, and so last week, we took the turn through joy, and we find ourselves here this week celebrating love. And Christmas is a season about this celebration of love primarily, that, um, that the divine isn't far off and distant, but that God is found in and amongst us in living flesh, the Christmas story is about God becoming flesh. And in this reality, we continue to keep God alive in the world. And so I'm so thankful that you're here. Um, I'm thankful for uh, the ways that we can reflect this season, that we can be a community reaching for hope and justice and love. Would you join me in prayer 
as we light this candle for love this morning. God of life and love. This morning, so thankful for the opportunity for us to gather here, not just with us here at Central, but with Christians around the world. As we celebrate what it means to embody the divine love in the world. God, this Christmas season, change us. Remind us of how far we have come, the work that you've done in us, the ways we've experienced and seen love. Empower us to show love in our relationships, in our community here, in our families, not just this time at Christmas, but let this be a reminder of your love for all of us from here moving forward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On Christmas Day, they're all familiar and carols play. The wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, good will to all. I thought how as the day and come the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth good will to all peace on earth good will to Despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, good will to all. Then peel the bells. More loud and deep God is not dead Nor doth he sleep The wrong shall fail And the right prevail With peace on earth Good will to all Peace on earth Good will way the world revolved from night to day a voice a chime a chant sublime 
of peace on earth, good will to all. Peace on earth, good will to all. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter long ago. Heaven cannot hold him, no earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place suffice. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. What can I give Him, poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I give my heart. Well, I just have two things to share with you this morning about uh, events coming up here at Central. The first, of course, we are going to be hosting our Christmas Eve service at five o'clock, uh, and that is going to be here in the sanctuary. So if you're in town, we hope that you'll join us for that. And uh, it is a, a candle lighting service. So we'll have a lot of candles lit in here with lights low, and uh, we'll sing some carols. We'll go through the Christmas narrative. Uh, if you haven't been with us for Christmas before, we really enjoy it. It's been a really a beautiful service that we put together. So I hope you'll join us. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to let you know about is we are hosting a meal for Essentia on the 30th of December, which is the last Thursday. And so if you're interested, you know, historically, we've always gone in person to prepare meals. But while COVID's been happening, we are uh, getting meals ready and sending them over. So if you'd like to participate in that, if you 
to uh, provide anything um, specifically to drop off, or if you wanted to uh, be a part of that in other ways, contributing anything at all, um, you can reach out to Max uh, at any time and we'll help get those things set up. So thanks for working with us with Ascensia. It's been an important partnership over the years and uh, especially so uh, here during COVID as they're still doing the difficult work of holding together uh, a transitional shelter in the middle of a global pandemic. So uh, yeah, partnerships have been great and thanks for continuing to do that with us. All right, so requests, <laughs> words of Thanksgiving. Uh, you're invited forward at this time to share if there's something on your heart uh, or if you're on Zoom. Um, you can just chime right in. I guess you can unmute and bring something up and I'll do my best to hear that and and uh, respond to that. But does anybody have anything they would like to share this morning? Sometimes people put stuff in the chat column there on Zoom. Nothing there, Babo? Okay, cool, cool. Well, let's just go right into our talk today. My favorite Christmas carol is Oh Holy Night, and Max is going to play this uh, soon at the, uh, at the conclusion of my talk during communion. We're going to do that. And um, the reason why I love that carol so much is not just because it's a beautiful carol, um, but because of the lyrics and specifically because of the third verse of it, which goes, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Isn't that a beautiful verse? And what's most interesting about this carol is the history of it. This was written in France in a small town, <laughs> can't even pronounce the name, in the 1840s. That's how old it is. And it was written, surprisingly, the lyrics were written by an atheist with socialist leanings, and the music was written by a Jewish man. And they were commissioned by the parish priest in that town to write a new Christmas song to go with the new organ. I'm pointing at our organ for some reason. We never use that thing. Um, to go with the new organ in the church. So this parish priest wanted some new Christmas music to go with the new organ, and he commissioned this atheist socialist and this Jewish man to write this carol. Um, we, I don't know why he chose them. Maybe because they were the most talented people in town. I, a small town in France in the 1840s. I don't know. Um, Anyway, the song was not well received by the church initially, not just because of who wrote it and created the music, that was a problem, but because it was labeled too political, not religious enough. It was actually banned. Nowadays, we would say it was canceled. Uh, you know, whoever thinks that uh, cancel culture is a new phenomenon uh, in church history, if you know your church history, uh, the, the church practically invented cancel culture, and this is a great example of it. So, but that aside, uh, it was John Sullivan Dwight, a man by the name of John Sullivan Dwight, a Unitarian minister here in the United States in 1855 that 
love that song and translated it from the French into English. And what's interesting about him is he loved that song because he was an abolitionist. This is 1855, right? He was an abolitionist and he, he translated that song into the English and popularized it in his community. And of course it took off, right? It became a very popular Christmas, but it was initially popular among fellow abolitionists during the time of the Civil War. It became an anthem of the movement, actually. This is the history of this carol. Most people don't know that history. I didn't know this history prior to, I don't know, six days ago when Max told me about it. I posted something on Facebook, which is where all truth abides. <laughs> uh, and Max was like, hey, do you know the history of this thing? And he told me about it virtually, which works really well. So anyway, I, I didn't know about the history of this until like six days ago, which it's an amazing history. This is an incredible song, incredible carol with, and, it, and it's um, not surprising that I hadn't heard of this uh, growing up in the church, right? So this being the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, where Bob and Max already shared our theme, you know, the traditional theme is peace, I'm sorry, love, and it's not just Central's traditional theme, right? This is liturgical. This is church tradition that today the church focuses on Christ's love. And so I thought we should take our cues from this Christmas carol. And the third verse, which again says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. What does it mean? Let's begin with the beginning of that carol, that third verse. What does it mean that his law is love as opposed to what? What else would his law be? Well, in Jesus's day, the law, of course, referred to the Mosaic law, a set of Jewish religious laws and customs to be followed in order to be the people of God and to keep the, the covenantal relationship with God. But Jesus being the controversial firebrand that he was, he upheld not the letter of the law, right? But the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law he showed us time and time again was love. Jesus upheld the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Countless times he went out of his way, we would even say, to defy the letter of the law, to subvert the letter of the law for the sake of compassion and mercy and justice. Countless times he did this. And perhaps prominent example of Jesus making this point is Matthew twenty two forty, 40, where he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, these two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And the fact is you cannot practice one without practicing the other. It's really about loving each other. We cannot love God directly, the gospel shows us. We can only love God indirectly by loving our neighbor. That's how you love God, according to Jesus. You know, and according to the early church, right? John tells us anybody who says, I love God, and yet mistreats their brother is a liar. You cannot claim to love God and not practice justice and love and mercy and compassion. It doesn't work. God can only be loved one way, through each other. So that's, that's really at the heart of the gospel, right? It's really about loving others. But throughout the Gospels and in so many different ways, Jesus teaches us this idea that we are to be people who uphold the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. For example, Jesus 
you know, picks grain on the Sabbath, and he's called out for this by the, by the Pharisees, right? Because he's breaking the letter of the law. He heals on the Sabbath, which again is breaking the letter of the law, I guess, and Jesus always refutes it. In fact, he even says the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. In other words, religion was what was made for us. We weren't made for religion. Humanity wasn't created for religious law. Religious law was made for us. It serves us. We don't serve it. And it doesn't serve us well, then we do something else, was his point. Jesus, of course, and John refuses to participate in the stoning of a woman caught in the very act of adultery. The book of Leviticus, the book of the law, said she was to be killed. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, thus subverting the letter of the law for the sake of the spirit of the law, which is love and compassion and mercy. This was Jesus's emphasis. And we could go on. He, he cavorted with Samaritans. He touched lepers. He, he did all these things that were forbidden by the Mosaic law. You get the point. It seems a major part of Jesus's message was that God was not a God of religious law, but God is a God of love, pure love. And therefore, we are to be people, not of religious law, but people of love. This radical idea and message culminates, of course, in the cross. And I think the cross signifies, maybe more than anything else in the Gospels, the crucifixion and, or the death of the God of religious law. The God of religious law is crucified dead at the cross, and a new God, you, we could say, is resurrected, a God of love, pure love. That, to me, is at the heart of the crucifixion. Remember what happens upon Jesus' demise. We're told the temple curtain, the, the, the curtain in the inner sanctuary, the most holy part of the temple, is torn in two, signifying the end of an era signifying the tearing or the deconstruction of this God of religious law, the God of sacrifices and rituals. And this God is crucified in the Gospels, we would say. And a new God or a new understanding of God is resurrected, a God of love, pure love. This idea was, of course, picked up by the early church and, and by the New Testament writers, particularly Paul. It's found echoed in numerous places. Romans 13.8, where he says, love fulfills the law, period. Love fulfills the law. But it's perhaps most represented in Paul's prolonged debate with the Jewish side of the church over the full inclusion of the Gentiles. We forget that Christianity began as a kind of radical movement within first century Judaism. It was a kind of a, a Jewish sect. It was entirely comprised of these Jews who were followers of this rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, who taught a different way, who subverted the letter of the law for the sake of the spirit of the law. It was entirely Jews early on. And so Paul, being a Jew and a Pharisee no less, former Pharisee, he engages in this prolonged controversial debate with the Jewish side of the church who believe, like Peter, no less, who believed that in order for Gentiles, not Jews, into the faith, they needed to, the men, needed to be circumcised. 
They needed to come into the faith through practicing a certain set of religious laws and customs that were part of the Jewish tradition for centuries, they believed. But Paul refuted this idea, adamantly refused it, claiming that the cross signified the end of the law. In a sense, not the abolishment of the law, but in a way it kind of was. The end of the law, the, law, the time of, of, the, of the letter of the law has ended. The time of love, pure love, has been inaugurated, called the kingdom of God. This was what Paul was arguing for. And he eventually persuaded the Jewish side of the church. Peter came along eventually and said, yeah, you're right. We don't have to, we're not enforcing these religious laws on the Gentiles anymore. Christ has set us free from the letter of the law, invited us into a religion of love, pure love. In that sense, it's not so much of a religion at all but a way of living in the world, a way of living in right relationship with each other. This is Christ. This is Christianity early on. Think about for a moment what it, would have, what it must have taken for a man like Paul, a Pharisee, a former Pharisee no less, to disavow circumcision. Think about that for a moment. Keep in mind that circumcision was you know, an eternal right, they believed non-negotiable. This is what it meant to be in right standing with God, for men at least. Think about what it must have taken when Paul challenged that and said that circumcision was ancillary at best, no longer central or necessary, or that circumcision had been spiritualized. He argued that it had been spiritualized into living a Christ-like life, that it was no longer a matter of the flesh, but a matter of the heart. And, and you know, to be circumcised meant that you lived a Christ-like life. He spiritualized it. Very progressive of him, wouldn't you say? And Paul, of course, was seen by many as apostatizing and going down a slippery slope into abject heresy for saying such things. He was called out for it. It's got him in a lot of trouble. 80 years ago, here in the United States in the 1940s, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, he picked up on this theme in Paul's writings, and he wrote this. Paul's question about whether circumcision is necessary for justification seems to me, in present-day terms, to be whether religion is necessary for salvation. In other words, Paul's deconstruction of circumcision and religious law in general signifies the deconstruction of religion itself as a means of pleasing God or knowing God or, or being the people of God. That's where Paul's anti-circumcision arguments inevitably lead. But keep in mind, he was only making such arguments because of what Jesus said and did. He was just following in Jesus's footsteps and how Jesus upheld the spirit of the law over the letter of the law and defined true religion as love, pure love. Paul was only following in Jesus's footsteps, and Bonhoeffer was only following in Jesus's and Paul's, and we're only following in all of theirs today. We're standing on their, their shoulders as we say such things. I think this means that Christianity is fundamentally, originally and fundamentally, 
about the deconstruction of religion into love. Now, don't get me wrong. Our religious practices, our religious observances, and our traditions are beautiful and meaningful. I mean, here we are gathered in this wonderful, beautiful sanctuary, singing these songs, hearing these words, and we're, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. These, these traditions are beautiful, and they connect us to each other, and we form community around them, and they hold incredible symbolic meaning, right? But if they're not teaching us to be people of love and peace and people of justice in the world, people who embody Christ's virtues, if, if these traditions don't teach us that, then they're hollow. We got to put the cart, the horse before the cart. It's about love. And these traditions connect us to Christians over the centuries, and they connect us today. But if they don't teach us to love each other and to care about a world in distress and practice justice and mercy, then what are they for? Christianity is about the end of not just one circumcision question, but all circumcision questions having to do with what beliefs or traditions or rites and rituals must be practiced in order to be the people of God. All that is required is love, pure love. All circumcision questions have been disqualified and deconstructed by the cross. This is what I think it means when we sing today, his law is love and his gospel is peace. To say that his law is love is to say that Christianity is less of a religion and more of a way of living in the world. And our understanding of this is tied to the second part of that third verse in O Holy Night, which goes, chain shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. This, of course, was written at a time, again, in the 1840s when Chattel slavery had just been recently abolished in France. It was still alive and well, as you know, in the United States through the end of the Civil War. But that's why that verse is in there. That's the world it was coming out of. Slavery was still being practiced in the West. And that's why this song became popular in the United States among abolitionists. Obviously, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian today. I think you'd be hard-pressed. I hope you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian today who thinks that Christ's love does not mean the end of slavery. Right? I would imagine that even the most conservative evangelical would say, yes, Christ's love means the end of slavery, that we shouldn't be practicing slavery. I would hope, I would expect that even the most conservative fundamentalists would say that. But back then, many Christians, back then meaning during the antebellum South and during slavery, right? Many Christians would have argued that Christ's love had little or nothing to do with such worldly affairs, such social reforms. Christ's love was found, rather, they would say, in personal salvation. This idea of God forgiving us our sins and granting us eternal life and delivering us from hell. That's what the gospel was about for them. Going to church and reading your Bible, being pious. Frederick Douglass in 1845 labeled this horrible understanding of Christianity as slaveholding religion. That's an important word for us to know. 
Frederick Douglass coined a term for that version of Christianity, slaveholder religion. Douglass believed that Christianity, the Christianity of the American slave owner was not Christianity at all, but a bastardized version of it that bore little resemblance to the emancipatory message of Christ. Douglass pointed out that slaveholding religion functioned under the guise of an orthodox reading of the text, a reading that valued pietism over social justice and personal salvation over the liberation of the oppressed. Sound familiar? In 1845, Douglas wrote this. The man who wields the blood-clotted whip during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and the lowly Jesus of Nazareth. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday mornings and Sunday school to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of all purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning how to read, end quote. This was slaveholding religion. And even though chattel slavery has long ago ended, the theological legacy of it lives on today in American evangelicalism. It is found in this notion that the gospel has little or nothing to do with matters of social justice or racial equality or other such worldly matters. Sure, you know, Jesus calls us to care for the poor and be charitable and things like that, but that's not the heart of the gospel, they would say. <laughs> the heart of the gospel is rather about eternal life and getting out from underneath the wrath of God and eternal damnation and having your sins forgiven. You know, the gospel is about treasures in heaven, they believe. Whatever we do for the poor and the oppressed here on earth is great, but that's ancillary, you know, it's secondary to what the gospel is really about, and that's eternal life. This is the perspective of countless evangelicals today, and it is basically slaveholding religion repackaged and rebranded. It's a little nicer, not much. And it performs the exact same function as it did in the American South of the 19th century. It is a thinly veiled form of white supremacy, greed and avarice, hidden under the guise of piety and an orthodox, a so-called orthodox reading of the text. It function, its function is to maintain the status quo socially, economically, while granting comfort and peace to those who refuse to acknowledge the emancipatory love of Jesus. This is the broad scope of Christ's love, I believe. The meaning of this third verse in O Holy Night. Christ's love doesn't just set us free from forms of theological or religious oppression, but political and social oppression as well. All man-made structures of oppression are crucified, deconstructed, disqualified in the name of Jesus. In his name, all oppression shall cease, the lyric says. 
And as we receive communion today, Max is going to lead us in this carol together. And I encourage you to muse on the meaning of Christ's love as we hear this carol and receive Holy Sacrament. And I want to invite everybody at this time to come up and grab one of these cups of cranberry grape juice and one of these gluten-free crackers. And you can take it back to your seat, please, and receive it at your leisure as you hear this song. I'm not going to lead us in taking it together. You take it as you will. Um, but meditate on the meaning of Christ's love and the meaning of this beautiful carol here this morning. You may come forward. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long may the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn from your knees. Oh, he. Oh, pray. 
praise his name forever his power and glory the more proclaim his power and glory Thank you, Max and Colin. Uh, as always, we want to leave some time and opportunity for discussion or questions or comments, reactions. And of course, you participating on Zoom have that option as well. Does anybody have something they want to say or ask about it? Yeah, Corey, I'm going to just hand you the mic so people can hear you online. Um, first of all, I really appreciated the talk. I feel like you threaded a few different things together in a way that was really helpful. Yes, hello, hello, hello. Um, yeah, I appreciate the talk. I feel like you threaded, you know, a couple different things together that was really helpful in um, talking about, you know, uh, the subtle white supremacy that ha is happening now. I'm subtle, you know, is arguable, but you know what I mean? Like it, uh, yeah, threading together the conversation about love in Advent with this bigger question of, um, okay, well, how are we loving each other? in our theology and our religion. Um, something I thought of though was uh, I had found out in college, went to, went to a fairly conservative Christian college and you know the, the Bible professors ranged from moderate to very conservative. One of the more kind of stereotypically more conservative professors told us, and this is probably true that the story of um, you know he who throws the first stone, modern uh, historian, you know theological historians uh, think that it maybe was added in between the writing of John and the canonization of scripture. And so somewhere it was added in. And so he had said like, well, and this is why, this is why we actually don't really, we're not really going to talk about it in this class. <laughs> and the irony is that it's like, so the story that indicates that, that indicates the spirit of the law that is so important to Jesus and his followers uh, you are going to refuse to talk about because it doesn't fit the letter of the law that's so important to, you know, a more conservative perspective. So, which is kind of a bummer because it is such a, you know, for him, I think I would say it's a bummer for him because it's such a good, uh, 
it's one of my favorite stories because it is so jarring about the letter versus the spirit of the law. And he's calling out both at the same time and he's bringing both together so strongly. And, um, you know, it makes even the person read, I mean, maybe, and maybe that's why it clearly isn't written by John because it is so pointed, um, but I'm okay with it. Like, I, because I, do, I think it does match the spirit of the law that Jesus talks about through all of John. So I, I love that. And I'm glad that you included it because it means that you're thinking about the spirit of the law too. So I love it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Corey. And I just, it's funny. I, I worked for a church in Nashville, Tennessee, conservative evangelical church, you know, might as well have been a different life, you know, 20 years ago, pretty much, um, where the lead pastor, in, in his study, I was alone with him in a study, and we were talking about that particular story, and he said the exact same thing. Now, that's something he would never say from a pulpit, like, this was added later on, this isn't really part of the authoritative text, because, of course, then you start down that slippery slope, well, what else in there is not part of the original? And of course, he did not want to entertain that. But behind closed doors, he'll go there. And he didn't like that story either for the exact same reasons, because it shows that God is not a God of religious law. And for evangelicals today, former evangelical speaking, right, the idea of religious law is still very powerful because you've got to have the right beliefs, you got to attend the right church, or you're doomed, right? You don't, you don't, if you don't get baptized the right way, you might go to hell. I mean, I was raised with these beliefs. I mean, with these ideas that in a sense, Christianity for a lot of Christians today is essentially, you know, diet first century Judaism. It's essentially, you know, half, half the same great taste, half the calories. It's still, you know, this idea of that religious law. And you better abide by the right religious law. It's about belief now. It's no longer about circumcision and keeping the Sabbath. It's easier now, but it's still about religious law. And if you don't have the right beliefs, if you don't do the right things, right? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. If you don't keep the right laws, you are doomed to a fate worse than death. I mean, so anyway, I'm hearing you say that. And it's, it's fascinating how they don't experience much cognitive distance from that. You know what I mean? And of course, that story in John's gospel is beautiful. And it's actually elucidating, exemplifying the heart of the entire book. Yes, of course, it was added later on. Who cares? It's part of the tradition. And the tradition's authoritative, right? And the, the tradition is that God is a God of love and mercy and compassion. I mean, it's anyway, we're preaching to the choir here. Now I'm getting all worked up more than I was in my talk. But yeah, Corey, it was a really good point. Other thoughts? Yeah. Ashley, right? Good. Yeah, I think it was reminding me also, um, I was reading in Philippians this week and talks about um, your love abounding more and more in truth and depths of, depths of insight. And also coming from an evangelical background, I think there's this constant conversation about the balance between truth and love and how truth and love are opposite sides of the same spectrum and we just have to find the right balance and they're both important. And uh, in my experience, people err more on the truth side than the love side. And so when I was reading in Philippians and he hearing that, right, may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What that flipped around for me was the idea that really love is the foundation. Truth and depth of insight grow out of love. It's not that you try to find the balance between the two and, you know, you don't want to be too loving because then you lose the truthfulness. It's 
Right. Yeah. Don't be too empathic. Don't be too kind to people. You don't want to, you know, gosh, lose truth in reality. Truth comes out of love. And the more that we lean into truth, then actually knowledge and depth of insight grow out of that. Yeah. Really good remarks about how in the Christian tradition, there is no dichotomy really between truth and love. They are synonymous. And Jesus is famous you know, a uh, question from Pilate, you know, what is truth? You know, Pilate asked him, right? Look at Jesus's life. That is truth. Love, pure love. Breaking the religious rules for the sake of compassion and love and mercy and justice. And yeah, yeah. That is truth. Ultimate truth is love. From the gospels. I mean, this isn't, I'm not even, you know, we're not even saying anything that daring, are we? <laughs> you know, First John 4, you know, God is love. He who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him, period. God is love, and he who abides in God, abides in love, abides in God. It's circular, and God abides in them. That's, that's what we, that was the original faith, and that's, we lose sight of that, unfortunately. Anyway, great comment. Anybody else this morning? Sorry, wait, say that again? The Gospel Coalition article? Did you want to? Oh, yeah, I did see that. The Sin of Empathy. Yes, I did see that article, right. It's astounding, isn't it? Max is commenting about the Gospel Coalition article that talks about the sin of empathy and how we lose our faith, our connection to divine truth if we love too much. This is, and let's, and let's just be clear, all of that functions as a way of maintaining control, right? It's fundamentally about control. And the fear, the anxiety of losing control, losing, you know, the ability to control people and fill the church pews and fill the coffers and maintain the budgets and the power and the influence at the church. You know, fortunately, when you go down the path of love, <laughs> And you tell people you don't need the church in order to know God because God is love and love is every you know, God is everywhere. That is not a good business model quite in, in capitalistic society, right? Proof is in the pudding here this morning. <laughs> but you get the point. Yeah, good stuff, Max. Thanks. All right. Anybody online want to comment or anybody else here? Well, let us be people of love and let us meditate on Christ's love now and always. And I invite you to be here on Christmas Eve if you're in town. My guess is there'll be more of us, but that's okay if there's not. We are here in the spirit of love. And so it feels like to me that the room's full because the room's full of love. But anyway, I thank you for being here. I thank you for those of you who are watching online. And uh, we will have service the day after Christmas next Sunday. Um, yep, Max is like, yeah great, right? Um, but anyway, thanks, everybody. Go in peace.